Section six of the Centurions, and this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Yanigu. The Centurions by Biagi, and Chapter six. Three days later, we started upon our adventurous trip to the pole. And Captain Norris, when bidding us farewell, hoped we would all meet again. Undoubtedly, Sex replied, "Undoubtedly, we'll all meet again, but perhaps not for years. All depends upon the atmosphere." Ahem. I feel evaporation of the fluid in the propeller cylinders. Should this occur, we'll be absent indefinitely. Many contend the Earth's summit is located at ninety degrees," continued Sachs in his most argumentative manner. "This preposterous! But avoid so that portion of the globe would have been explored long ago. The Earth's summit is at a hundred degrees. I state this as fact, and the difficulties I expect to encounter will be beyond the ninetieth degree." The atmosphere will be so compressed as to cause either an explosion of the fluid in the tanks, or gradual evaporation. For either calamity, I'm altogether unprepared, and consequently figure on the homeward journey to be one of acute hardship, and consuming an indefinite period. But the shadows exist only where there is brightness. At any rate. We have provisions for seven years, and Captain Norris, I'll guarantee that in this time we'll reach the pole and return to our homes, each busily engaged upon a book of how I discovered the North Pole. Norris smiled, but avoided the remarks, and shook hands all around. Then I took him aside and entrusted him with a letter for Old Middleton. I advised Middleton, though arrangements were waterproof, to personally attend to it that the ship sailed north every year to meet us. I knew he would, and spared no expense. And most humbly, I begged pardon for breaking my word to him. I could give no excuse except the unknown polar regions fascinated me, and. Against the reason, it is the last moment I joined the expedition. Years later, I learned that Middleton, when he received the letter, was thrown into such a state of alarm and anxiety that he collapsed and took to his bed with a serious illness, from which he recovered with great difficulty. I am satisfied Middleton's affection for me was disinterested. Captain Norris, also his men, were superstitious, and declared they would not invite ill luck by seeing us off. But the Eskimo clamored about us, loading us with gifts. One gave Sacks a keg of oil, which he stored away with great care. What he wanted with that oil was a mystery. Skins, furs, were forced upon us. Strings of fresh fish and a great quantity of dried 
or frozen fish packed together like staves of barrel was presented to me. We were each presented with a canoe, with information that we would need them. Six repeated his kindness with quantities of beads and imitation jewelry, and I flung a little fortune among the natives. Norris saluted with four guns. The propeller responded with a shrill blast from her siren as we sped out among the snow hills, which soon hid all our friends from a view. At last we were really started upon a long journey of marvelous adventure. We traveled north along the coast of Greenland. The propeller acted well. The feeler did a splendid work, warning us of breaks or gaps in the ice, by vibrating and resounding with a hollow noise. The great arc light cast a radiance of three hundred yards, and we traveled at full speed night and day. Each were initiated into the mysteries of the engine room, and took turns in steering the machine. Saunders, however, was exempt from these duties. He permitted nothing to interfere with the work he'd mapped out for himself. He alone was spared from what is called snow blindness. With his exception, we were all decorated with great blue goggles. I was the first to succumb to the glaring whiteness of the snow. The continuous sameness of Arctic landscape became very tiresome. As far as the eye reached, were vast plains of ice and snow, a blinding whiteness in soft downy hollows and smooth mounds, the earth shrouded in a widening sheet of white velvet, and vividly in the distance, with a blue misty veil. And shielding their peaks was the circular range of ice mountains that has been declared not but an optical illusion. All polar explorers have viewed these strange mountains, whose distance is beyond speculation, having always that elusive appearance even at the highest altitudes. And scientists claim this mystic range. To be a reflection cast by the heavy, frozen atmosphere, and Sheldon was the only one with time to argue about the matter. He agreed with me the elusive range was a solid fact, all right, but he went further, declaring they were not polar mountains, and that his great body of fresh water rested, etc. When he reached this stage in his argument, my interest flagged, and Sheldon and his body of water became very tedious sometimes. Sachs was occupied entirely with the propeller, and Saunders altogether absorbed making atmospheric observations. These observations he takes every seven hours. Making us lose much valuable time, and rousing sex to caustic remarks, he puts in the rest of the time studying a chart of the heavens and peering at the stars. Our first mishap 
occurred at 74 and 5 tenths degree north latitude. The propeller was speeding, but suddenly the feeler vibrated. Then followed a jarring and crushing sound, and the propeller plunged into a thin layer of ice and snow, and was washed by the swiftly flowing black waters underneath. At the first vibration, the sacks quickly shut off the current, and then with considerable difficulty, backed the propeller from her perilous position. We had plunged into a parting or lane, 15 feet wide and 3 miles long, concealed by new snow that had ice on the surface, and were obliged to make a wide detour. Saunders reported a faint aurora borealis in the northeast. It turned out to be the moon's rays and piercing a macro sky. It was a beautiful sight. White shining clouds with antlers branching in long waving ribbons creamed like blonde, which scintillated in diffused patches on the horizon. As we watched, the moon sailed high, dimming and scattering the shimmering radiance. We had the love on Saunders, who stubbornly insisted and the bright light was a faint aurora. As the heavens are one continual phenomenon, always inspiring mortal with awe, and considering that Saunders knew more of the heavens than any of us, I had a secret belief he might possibly be correct, particularly as we witnessed this phenomenon time after time when there was no moon. The same shining white clouds with rippling antlers parting in flaming rays, which stretched across the sky in a bold, throbbing arch, varying in tints of yellowish, bluish, milky white, all cold, chilly colors. But beautiful. The sex became bold over the successful traveling of his machine, and announced it his belief that we would reach the pole in a month. But the difficulties commenced when we reached 78 degrees north latitude, and progress became slow, and we were obliged to travel inland to avoid the high winds which threw the snow into insurmountable mounds forming alleyways and embankments, and all the time from the north came that ominous warning boom as the ice packed and screwed together. The inevitable, as Sachs called it, and that which has confronted all polar explorers over the Greenland route, happened at 79 degrees. Further travel was blocked by a chain of small ice hills, so closely packed together, they formed a wall, seemingly an impenetrable blockade, extending as far as the site reached. For several weeks, we traveled in an easterly direction, then dealt the jagged opening in the shifting chain, which revealed a veritable world of peaks, at sight of which Sheldon blurted out, It can't be done, sex, old boy. But the propeller was invented to crush all obstacles, and Sex grimly, cautiously steered through the icy gate. 
He found it very difficult to operate the engine in this terrible mountainous district. He ran upon the frozen surface of the sea, whose waves seemingly had ice as they formed with a swell. We realized the danger, but there was no turning back. Through extreme caution, we were spared disaster. Sachs never left his post in the little engine car. He refused aid. We were not expert enough for the situation. Weeks were consumed in passing over this hilly waste, but hundreds of miles were traversed, and then gradually the ice peaks wheeled further apart, and Jack's waves smoothened, and we finally plowed into a far-reaching plain of snow, with the distant horizon cut by the familiar, elusive range of mountains and capped with their azure veil. We had reached 87 degrees, and were miles from our original course, but steadily advancing toward the pole. 87 and 5/10 degree north latitude, and 175 and 6/10 degree east longitude, rattled off Saunders. The propeller was put at full speed, but soon slackened. As we continually encountered lanes concealed by soft new snow, so frequent did these partings become, the machine was forced to a zigzag course. It took half a day to make two miles, and when we halted, the situation was alarming. The ice was shallow and the breaks continual, having the appearance of lakes or rivers. The black southern water rippled and flowed with a swift undercurrent. Some of the lanes measured thirty feet in width, and one reached seven hundred yards in length. We agreed the danger was about equal in turning back or pushing forward. We had nothing to gain in turning back. The Sheldon was nonplussed. He could not account for the swiftly flowing surface streams at 88 degrees. He finally ventured; they were not breaks in the ice, but freshets coursing from the north and plowing their own avenues, and creating one of the phenomena of the polar sphere. Saunders snickered, but Sachs looked worried. A source somewhere, he muttered. But he was wrong. The cold was intense, and void not for a superb heating apparatus, the pipe extending throughout the cars, we would have been compelled to turn back. Nothing human could live in such temperature. And gradually, we dashed free of the freshet-bound region, and traveled swiftly over a smooth, wide plain without a rut or ripple. Huge floes of ice packed and scooted together till seemingly one vast flow extended over the whole of this drear, unknown continent. And always, the same distance away was the blue, mystic range of mountains. I wondered if we would ever reach them. We were making splendid time, and gaining on that lost in the mountainous lake district. Yet Sachs appeared troubled. I fear a storm, he told me, 
We cannot escape them now. We are nearing the summit. That night, a strange light illuminated the sky. An aurora shouted the thunders. Undoubtedly, it was, but the beauties of the aurora had appealed upon us. Yet this night, the flaming, brilliant tinted sky held our attention. Awe-inspiring was the vast arch of fire, crown-formed, spiked with quivering streamers. The fiery crown varied not in shade, but it seemed to burn with deeper intensity. A star, ominous red, clouded some of its brightness. The quivering streamers oscillated with wonderful tints, making each seem as though studded with real gems. The blood-red ruby glowed upon us, compared to the amethyst heliotrope, which faded before the rush of emerald, flooding the sky. And the baleful topaz streaked the delicate green as a flaming arch, each with a penetrating turquoise, quivered and vibrated with darts and flashes. As we watched the gaudy spectacle, it seemed to dull and darken and grow heavier, as though gifted with substance. Then. With indescribable majesty, slowly descended to the earth. The heat became intense, the atmosphere stifling. We raised the windows, but quickly closed them. The car filled with sulfurous air, which started us to coughing and sneezing. We glanced at each other, silent, dismayed, insects, impelled and trembling. Sank to a seat. The propeller will explode. Nothing's proof against this," he cried. "We are witnessing," said Saunders, in reassuring tones, "a phenomenon of the heavens, a combination of electrical forces, which will soon disperse and rage in various portions of the globe. It cannot harm us." Should it descend, as its power, force, we have evaporated, this portion of the globe upon which we are now traveling is, um, um. God in heaven, yelled Sachs. Look, boys, we are done for. Sachs, the mainspring of the party, to our amazement, was overcome with terror. Come, he cried. Retreating with frantic haste, come or we'll perish. The propeller is going to burst. We stampeded to the rear car, and clustered around the window to gaze at that which had so roused the sex terror, while he sank in a heap, mopping his brow. The wide spreading arch of fire suddenly parted with a great blast of thunder. Which rolled and revolved over our heads with a terrific crash, then passed on towards the south. What attracted our attention was the appearance of a great milky-white cloud that sailed through the parted arch, submerging it. A cloud, funnel-shaped, 
of a milky opal tint, whose throbbing, fiery heart burned vividly beneath the thin shell covering. It gained in size and weight as it advanced, and gradually losing flakiness, became a dull, ominous purple, rapidly deepening to black. Then, with appalling suddenness, it was upon us. We were among the racing clouds, tossed and scattered by the roaring gale. Thunder boomed, and wild lightning flashes pierced our car. And then the hurricane struck us squarely, lifting, overturning the car, and we were buried beneath the wreck. I was stunned. But a slight scalp wound, which bled profusely, relieved me greatly. The heat was suffocating. My clothing became saturated with perspiration, streaming from every pore of my body. Sykes was the first to recover, and extricated himself from the storage and debris, unhurt but badly scratched. And once more, the energetic, pushing old boy. We were familiar with. The worst is over," he bawled, "and the propeller didn't bust. But the snow is falling in clouds. Boys, brace up, or we'll be buried alive." Sheldon and Saunders squirmed lively after this. We forced our way out of the overturned car and sank waist deep in soft new snow, which prevented the gale carrying us away. The propeller and adjoining cars were not damaged. The snow having blown up against and piled high, protecting them almost entirely. But the wind now carried the snow over and down the sides, causing Sex to shout, "Hustle, boys! Hustle! We'll be buried alive!" The heaters were filled and the fire started. In a short time. The waste pipes were letting off streams of steam. We shoved a bank nearly twelve feet high, which protected ourselves from the wind, but it flung the snow upon us faster than we could work. And from steam to shower, we labored for our lives against odds for eight long, weary hours. But the storm spent itself and ceased as suddenly as it came. And calmed beneath the freezing temperature that descended, the snow iced. Our labor was over, and we sought shelter, food, and rest. Saunders advised early departure, and two hours later we started. The propeller made a rush up the steep embankment. Midway, she seemed to lose speed, but suddenly cleared the remaining distance. It bounded. The dense atmosphere had lifted, and a plain upon plain of snow with wind-tossed mountain hills made our vision. And over it all, a crescent moon glistened mystically. The searchlight flared, and with a shrill blast, we speeded northward. Midnight, we had reached and traveled beyond the altitude and scientists claim the Earth's pivot is located. And towards morning, a heavy mist fell upon us—a dark, silent, deadly mist, which sent a chill to our bones. I could not shake off the dull feeling of dread that came over me. 
The propeller glided smoothly, swiftly onward, and taking us farther into this horrible desolate. The fear that tugged at my heart shamed me to silence. I glanced furtively at my three companions, who were unusually still, and whose faces blanched beneath my scrutiny. Then Sex suddenly halted the propeller and addressed us. Boys, he said, we have stood by one another. We are not cowards, but life is life, and the pole be damned. We have penetrated farther north than man ever dared. We do not fear, but others felt the same way in much lower attitudes, and stampeded to civilization with tales of blizzards, blockades, and the impossibility of life beyond a certain degree. There are unknown dangers ahead, and death sometimes is very slow, and the struggle and dare and have it all and in oblivion are, I think, senseless. The Earth's summit is at a hundred degrees. We have entered the mystic circle, just league to discovery. The propeller at full speed could dash through in a few minutes. We will suffer an awful experience, a terrible risk. And as I said before, boys, life is life. I call the expedition off. We will return. He glanced wistfully at me, but I avoided his eyes. The passion for the mist had for the time evaporated. After all, life is worth the living. The world is full of beauty and harmony if we choose to see it. I fully realized the hazardous undertaking I had ventured upon, and, God in heaven, I may never return. Sex was turning back through anxiety for his friends. Were he alone, he would crush the dread he imagined upon him and push ahead. He forgot the fanaticism of his comrades, and truly they were three of a kind. Saunders sprang forward. And caught Sex's arm. Correct, correct, he cried. We are not cowards. Where are you turning back? The dread upon us is the dread of nature, the all-pervading fear of first venture, which the will overcomes, or will still be apes. Determination invites progress. Fear checks it. All dread is the unknown. Now. Up to ninety-eight or hundred degrees, I can state positively what we'll encounter. We will completely traverse the frozen polar sea. From now on, its surface ice and melting snow slushing over brown rocks or earth. At hundred degrees, we view the most uncanny scenery man ever gazed upon: great mountains and steep, smooth cliffs of petrification, deep, gloomy, barren valleys. Horrible stillness, and lighting up this dead, petrified portion of the globe is the star, the star I will brave death to see. The foe we have to conquer is atmosphere. Science may help, but there is no atmosphere. In advancing, we flirt with death, who welcomes us with dreadful grandeur. But a bold flirtation does not always end disastrously. We can view the almighty magnet, then depart. Oh, 
don't pay any attention to him," interposed Sheldon. "He blunders constantly. If I believed in him, I'd favor turning back. For days we've argued this matter. He's merely expressed his views, not facts. I agree with him regarding the petrification of the earth surrounding the pole. The cold is so intense, petrification is natural, but it's a lack of atmosphere, laughable. From the high altitude, undoubtedly will suffer, experience palpitation, vertigo, and other inconveniences, including a tantalizing thirst. Then again, boys, nature being freakish, you may experience none of these ills, but enjoy the wild, weird scenery of the Earth's summit. We'll view the blue reflection apps, and drink sparkling crystal water from the reservoir of the Earth. Onward, sex, onward! But should the propeller cease to work, we are dead men. I listened to the absurd reasoning of my three esteemed friends, realizing I had three fanatics to deal with. Lacking persuasive ability, I had to rely upon common sense. And plain English to point out the folly of advancing, I had the power to command the expedition off, and rose to better emphasize my words. When suddenly the doubts and the nervous restlessness encamped in a deep, delicious languor, which overpowered and deadened reason, I made a feeble effort to regain my flying senses, but the soft, warm zephyr. Heavy with an unknown magnetic perfume, dragged my will. In that instant, I revelled in dreams, a maze of love ecstasy. My pulse quivered and tingled with delight. I was blind to all danger. Prudence vanished before impetuous recklessness and desire. I sank to my seat. Onward! I cried hoarsely. With wildly beating heart, forward, sex, forward, and I too was a fanatic. End of section six.